0: Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based podcast with regional content for regional clinicians. I'm Alyssa Hathaway, a GP and family planning clinician and head of JCU's clinical school here in Mackay. This collaborative podcasting project between North Queensland Regional Training Hubs, JCU, and our local regional hospital and health services will bring you a different regionally relevant podcast each fortnight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we meet today, who were the original providers of healthcare in this region. In today's episode, I'm joined by nephrologist from the Cairns region, Dr. Tahira Scott. Hi, Tahira. Hi, Alyssa. How are you today? I'm well and so excited to be able to chat to you. I understand your work as a kidney specialist is mainly in Torres and Cape regions. I can't think of anyone more well qualified to talk about renal disease today. Well, thank you for
1: having me. Yeah, that's right. So I am very privileged. I get to go and travel to the communities in the Torres and Cape and see the patients out there. So I'm excited to talk to you about
0: kidney disease today. Thank you for having me again. I'm sure it's something you're super passionate about or you wouldn't have trained in it. Can you start by giving us a definition of chronic kidney disease or CKD?
1: Absolutely. Always a good place to start. So the definition of CKD really is centred around abnormalities in the pathology that needs to be present for three months and that it's present on several um, tests that you've ordered. So the first criteria that you can meet the definition of CKD is if you have an EGFR, less than 60 mils per minute per 1.73 meter square. And that's on the CKD epi formula, which all Australian laboratories use. However, it's important to remember that creatinine can be quite fluctuant and it can vary with hydration. And so it's always important to check if this is the first time you've seen your patient with this kind of result with an EGFR less than 60, that it is truly persistent. So we always recommend to check the kidney function again within one to two weeks to confirm that. The second criteria that meets the definition of CKD is if you have a normal EGFR, but evidence of kidney damage. And the way we define evidence of kidney damage, the first example is albinuria which you would confirm on a urine albumin creatinine ratio. And we always recommend to repeat this test more than once. And the recommendation is to try and do it for the first void in the morning, which I know can be quite challenging logistically to get your patients to do that. But the reason why is that um, albinuria has a dineural variation. So after you've been up and about during the day in ambulatory, you will have a higher albinuria result at the end of the day. Another example of detecting kidney damage is hematuria. And so you'll see dysmorphic red cells once the pathologist spins down that urine. And if you do see hematuria and it doesn't have the comment that it's dysmorphic, it's still worth just working up because unfortunately, the morphology on urine MSUs are not always very accurate. So it's important to exclude urological causes of that hematuria. And I would recommend doing an ultrasound to exclude any stones, any lesions, and of course, the three urine cytologies, which I'm sure most of the listeners are familiar with. And then the last evidence of kidney disease that you may find is when you do an ultrasound, um, KUB, you may see cysts on the kidney, and they may actually qualify for polycystic kidney disease, all dependent on their age and their family history.
0: Right. So that's a lot of things to be considering in our day-to-day practice. Thanks, to Hera. When we consider all those different ways to define CKD, what then is the burden of CKD in Queensland's population and particularly the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population?
1: So the burden of CKD is a very topical issue at this point of time. And this is because the Kidney Health Australia organisation released a report this year outlining the burden of CKD at the national level and also the cost to the taxpayer. And just to let the listeners know, in 2021 there was over two million Australians with evidence of CKD and it was costing the t- Australian taxpayer 9.9 9 billion dollars. And that's because kidney disease is expensive. Um, patients with kidney disease have higher rates of hospital emissions because they're comorbid. They also have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And just as a side note, um, the new Oz CBD risk calculator, actually classifies patients as high risk for cardiovascular disease if they have an eGFR less than 45 or a severely increased albinuria. So that's a UACR greater than 30, meaning that they're at a greater than 10% risk within five years of having a cardiovascular event. So at the local level, we're within Queensland, one in 10 patients have evidence of CKD, or one in 10 Queenslanders, sorry, and one in five Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders will have biochemical signs of CKD. And just to make the issue even more concerning, from a metabolic point of view, two-thirds of Queenslanders currently are overweight and obese, which is predicted to lead to a diabetes epidemic and really encouraging us as clinicians that we need to start thinking about screening more widely because if we do not change our current screening practices and screen more widely, it's forecasted by 2030 that the number of patients that have kidney failure will increase by 42%. So it's very concerning, Alyssa.
0: Two million Australians, one in five Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders—that's just massive. Talking about increasing our screening capacity here, who should we be screening for kidney disease? So, not just people with a lower GFR. It sounds like anyone who is overweight or obese. We should be doing a urine ACR, perhaps.
1: Yeah, so that's right, Lisa. So at the moment, the Kidney Health Australia um, specifies screening all high-risk individuals every twelve months. And so they define high-risk individuals as patients that have diabetes mellitus, hypertension, a family history of kidney disease, if they're an active smoker or if they've had a history of AKI because AKI will lead to nephron loss and therefore a risk of CKD, as well as patients that have vascular disease. So if they've had a heart attack before or they have peripheral vascular disease. And patients that are greater than 60 years of age. And then the last factor, which is really relevant, given I just told you two-thirds of Queenslanders are overweight and obese, is that they recommend screening severely overweight and obese individuals. And I mean, severely overweight is a little bit hard to define. But as a clinician, if you just suspect that you should be screening your patient for kidney disease, I would just encourage you to go ahead and do it. Because the tests are relatively inexpensive and the impact of detecting kidney disease and managing it is quite profound. Now, there's actually different recommendations for screening in our First Nation populations. So for First Nation people, it's recommended to start doing a kidney health check as soon as they turn 18 years of age as part of their adult health check that they do. And that's with annual screening once again. But I just want to share some additional factors, if that's okay, Alyssa, just about First Nation kidney disease. Sure. Last year, the Caring for Australian and New Zealanders with Kidney Impairment Guideline was released, and they've recommended removing Indigenous status as a risk factor for chronic kidney disease because the increased risk is explained by adverse social determinants of health, which leads to a greater burden and progression of CKD. So these additional risk factors when you're seeing your First Nation patients uh, should be considered. So one of the additional risk factors is having a low birth weight. So if they were born at less than 2.5 kilos, And the pathophysiological reason for that is when infants are born with lower birth weight, they're born with less nephrons and they get a phenomenon called hyperfiltration in the kidney, which actually leads to intraglomerular hypertension. And because of that, you get scarring of that nephron. And we call that secondary focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, which eventually will be completely sclerosed and they'll lose that nephron. And therefore, they're at a high risk of CKD. Other risk factors include acute post um, streptococcal glomerulonephritis and the social disadvantages that we know that exist, especially in our rural remote communities like lower socioeconomic status, lower education and insecure housing. And why it's so important to find kidney disease in our First Nation population is that we have evidence from the EGFR study led by Jackie Hughes that once a First Nation person has severely increased albinuria, so that's a UACR greater than 30, they're more likely to have a rapid decline in their EGFR by more than six mils per year, which is very, very rapid considering the normal accepted EGFR decline is around one to Two mills, which is accepted as a normal age-related decline in a non-diabetic, non-diabetic patient.
0: This is shocking to hear. To hear, even in a workplace like we have, where we know the social determinants of disease are so impactful, in a region where we know equitable access to healthcare is diabolical, it's a massive, massive problem, and only as you say, expected to get significantly worse over the next few years. When we're doing our screening, you've mentioned UACR a few times. Mm. Is that just one tool? Should we do, be doing the GFR and the UACR annually? So the standard kidney health check
1: involves a blood pressure which most listeners would do, a urine albumin-creatinine ratio and an eGFR as you mentioned. I think it's worth just exploring and really explaining why we're doing a urine albumin creatinine ratio rather than a urine protein creatinine ratio to the listeners, because we kind of just made that switch a couple decades ago, and a lot of people don't quite understand why. The reason why is that albumin is the most common protein within our blood, and it's very indicative of glomerular damage. When you do an albumin creatinine ratio, it's a standardized ratio, meaning that if you had a UACR done at Southern Nicolades and then you got it done at Queensland Pathology, you can compare those two results and they would be very similar. Where the urine protein creatinine ratio, however, it detects other proteins such as light chains globulins, tam horseful protein. And some of the different assays, depending on which laboratory, can detect more proteins than others can. So they're not really directly comparable, as well as the factors I mentioned before, it depends on what time of the day you're testing it. The other reason we do a urine albumin creatinine ratio rather than a urine protein creatinine ratio is that we've been using UACRs in our research now for some time, and we can directly correlate an albinuria level to the risk of cardiovascular disease and also progression to kidney failure. That's the standard test that you do, kidney health check. And if you find a signal on those tests that there's evidence of kidney disease, then it's recommended to start investigating further to think, hey, hang on a minute, what's causing this kidney disease? And so the test that we recommend would be starting off with the full blood count, doing some inflammatory markers like an ESR and a CRP, and that's simply just to screen and make sure that there's nothing else going on like a multiple myeloma or another autoimmune condition. Of course, a urine MSU is very important, especially looking for dysmorphic red cells, which could represent a glomerular disease. Other important things are an ultrasound KUB really to define the anatomy. And I have been asked by um, clinicians in the past Do I need to do an ultrasound KUB if they have a normal EGFR? Well, if you're investigating albinuria, I would highly recommend doing it because some patients are born with one kidney. So they have um, a solitary kidney and that kidney, because they have less nephrons, is once again undergoing that hyperfiltration process, working extra hard, having scarring, and it will manifest as increasing albinuria. And then lastly, really when you detect kidney disease, you need to screen for chronic diseases that may actually be causing the kidney disease and so doing a HbA1c if you don't know if they have diabetes yet and a lipid profile.
0: That's um, a great and comprehensive list of what we can do and something that all of us can uh, manage in our day-to-day practice for sure. So once we've detected the kidney disease then after having performed our kidney health check and any of those follow-on investigations, What's our next step in terms of our management? Because a lot of us will be able to initiate those lipid-lowering medications and diabetes medications to improve GFR straight away, or do we need to get in contact with the nephrologist sooner rather than later? So what I
1: recommend is Kidney Health Australia have an excellent app that you can download to a smartphone called the CKD Go app. And essentially this app allows you to enter the patient's EGFR and their albinuria status. And then... In- essentially lets you know straight away should, should you or should you not refer to nephrology and gives you some suggested management plans. Um, and it really all depends on what you think is causing the kidney disease really. The Kidney Health Australia guidelines recommend an immediate referral to nephrology if their EGFR is less than 30 mils per minute or if they have persistent, severely increased albinuria, which we used to call macroalbuminuria, where the UACR is greater than 30 milligrams per millimole. There's two other criteria where you can refer, and that's if you have a sustained decrease in EGFR of 15 mils within one year, so within a 12-month period. So as a practical example, say your patient had an EGFR above 60, say 75 a year prior, you see them, it's dipped below 60, I would still suggest once again to just check it. And if it's persistently below 60, then a referral to nephrology is warranted because there's probably a rapid progressive kidney disorder that needs to be investigated by a nephrologist at that point of time. But it's very useful if you could do those other tests that I mentioned to explore why they why they might potentially have kidney disease. And then the last criteria that Kidney Health Australia lists include a patient that has CKD, so meeting that definition we went through at the start of the podcast, and they have really challenging or difficult hypertension to control. So they have the definition of resistant hypertension where they're on three antihypertensives with one of them being a diuretic and their blood pressure is still greater than 130 on 80 on a standard office measurement. Of course, if you find some other peculiar situation where you think someone might have a glomerular disease and they don't fit within those criteria, you can always refer or you can always ring your local hospital and ask to speak to the renal
0: registrar or the consultant on call and they can help guide you from there. Oh, that's fantastic to hear us. So we'll do our kidney health check, which is starting off with our urine albumin creatinine ratio, looking for a number less than 30, an EGFR and a blood pressure. And we can then refer if the EGFR is less than 30 or the urine ACR is greater than 30 straight away. Or we can uh, look for some assistance from the CKD Go app or from our local nephrology reg or kidney specialist who will be able to give us a little bit more guidance with our patients. Tahira, can we talk about diabetes please? I'm a little bit scared.
1: Of course, we have to talk about diabetic kidney disease. Um, it's a very important condition that we're all seeing in our practice, especially in North Queensland and far North Queensland. So, yes, let's talk about diabetic kidney disease. Really, when it comes to diabetic kidney disease, we can expect that 30 to 40 percent of patients that have diabetes mellitus will develop diabetic kidney disease And historically, we used to call it diabetic nephropathy. And that really was defined by a patient having retinopathy and type 1 diabetes and albinuria. Now we're using the term diabetic kidney disease, which I personally like because it's more patient friendly. And essentially, all that that term means is that they've got diabetes and they've got signs of kidney disease, as we mentioned in our definition of CKD. Um, so when it comes to diabetic kidney disease, really the hallmark is albinuria, uh, but it's important to remember that not everybody that has diabetic kidney disease will have albinuria.
0: Right. So not everyone who has diabetic kidney disease has albuminuria. How are we going to tease out which of our diabetic patients need the help of a kidney specialist?
1: It would be exactly the same as the criteria that we mentioned before, Alyssa, with referral. But today I want to talk to you a little bit about how primary care can manage diabetic kidney disease because we have now in the literature – Uh, the four pillars of diabetic kidney disease management, which kind of target the different pathophysiological pathways that are leading to the damage within the kidney. So I might just briefly go through the pathophysiology just to remind the listeners about why diabetes is causing kidney disease and then go through um, the different four pillars of diabetic kidney disease management. Fantastic. So the, the reason why patients get Uh, kidney damage from diabetes really is because of three pathways. So the first thing is we have the hyperglycemia, which leads to advanced glycated end products, reactive oxygen species and inflammation in the kidney. And so this inflammation can lead to fibrosis. And once you have fibrosis in the kidney, of course, you're going to get progressive nephron loss. You also get the hemodynamic dysregulation, which leads to intraglomerular hypertension simply because you have endothelial dysfunction just because of that hyperglycemic environment amongst other things. So overall, if we were to biopsy patients with diabetic kidney disease, which we often don't, you would see on a biopsy of what we call mesangial expansion and nodules. Probably the most important thing that kind of may help the listeners understand why the patients get albinuria, though, is that you see endothelial damage, basement membrane thickening and podocyte loss. So across the board, in most kidney conditions, if you have podocyte loss, then you will get albinuria because the podocytes and their foot processes are the last barrier between the glomeruli and the filtrate. And so if those podocytes aren't working, protein will get into the urine where it shouldn't be. And we will see that manifest as albinuria or proteinuria. Now with diabetic kidney disease, once the damage is there, it's irreversible and we really need to mitigate the progression. So how do we as nephrologists diagnose diabetic kidney disease if we are not um, biopsying patients? The first thing is that they have to have signs of CKD, which we've gone through that definition. It is very suggestive that they're going to have diabetic kidney disease if they have retinopathy because, let's face it, hyperglycemia doesn't select what small arterioles it's going to affect. If it's affecting the eyes, it's going to be affecting the kidneys. Mm -hmm. And also, it helps when someone's had a, a duration of diabetes for more than five years. It's more suggestive they're going to be having diabetic kidney disease. The other criteria is that we, as clinicians, need to assess and ensure that we don't think there's any other alternative diagnoses going on. So we're pretty confident it's going to be the diabetes. They've had it for 10 years. They've had some historic poor control and they've got albinuria. Nephrologists rarely do kidney biopsies for diabetic kidney disease unless they're suspicious that there may be another etiology that's the primary driver. Or if someone has very stable albinuria for some time and they suddenly have a rapid increase in the amount of albinuria, that can suggest that potentially there's something else going on. So the four pillars of diabetic kidney disease management, are you ready to talk about them, Melissa?
0: Oh, let's. This is this, There's quite a lot to go through here.
1: There is a lot to go through, but I I think it's important to talk about these pillars because it's forecasted within the next five to 10 years that three of the four pillars will be the causes of CKD. As you know now with SGL2 inhibitors, we have the indication for CKD with albinuria. So there's a lot of these drugs that we'll be using across the board in most CKD, and this will be conditions that that are not glomerular disease that require high doses of immunosuppression or conditions like PKD. Now, when I'm talking about these four pillars, of diabetic kidney disease these can all be started by primary care and it's mostly really discussing type 2 diabetes that's causing diabetic kidney disease and I would admit you have to be quite creative with how you use your PBS codes to try and get your patients on these drugs so let's dive in. So the first pillar is ACE inhibitors and ARBs. And most listeners will be very comfortable with using these drugs. We use them in CKD. We've got large international RCTs, which show that they're effective. And they work on that pathophysiological pathway of the hemodynamic dysregulation by dilating the efferent arterial. And we know by trying to get patients on the highest tolerable dose of an ACE or ARB, the main limitation being hyperkalemia, that we can potentially see a 15 to 20% relative risk reduction in CKD progression. Everyone's pretty comfortable with ACEs and ARBs, right? Yep. So the second pillar is SGL-2 inhibitors, which I'm sure most primary care doctors are getting very comfortable with too now. Yeah. So we have three large international trials now in the kidney space for these drugs, so Credence, DAPA-CKD, and EMPA kidney. And SGL-2 inhibitors work in the kidney by several pathways. The first one is they also work by resolving that hemodynamic dysregulation. So it does that by the afran-arterial constricts, essentially by restoring the tubular glomerular feedback loop and reducing intraglomerular hypertension. And then SGL2 inhibitors also reduce inflammation in the kidney. Um, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of why, but they do. And the benefit of this is that we've seen across those three large trials and pooling all that data in a large meta-analysis, that we can see a reduction in progression to basically requiring dialysis by greater than 40%. So it's quite significant.
0: And of course, working together with the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs, that's going to be an even greater benefit, isn't it?
1: That's correct. That's right. And so at the moment, the PBS does restrict prescribing it to patients that have albinuria, but it's actually recommended when our KDGO um, International Guidelines that we should try and start all of our patients with diabetic kidney disease on SGL2 inhibitors regardless of the stages of albinuria. So we've seen in the studies that there is benefits even at, you know, microalbinuria levels. However, the most beneficial or notable benefit is when you have severely increased albinuria.
0: So Tahira, how are we going to get around the PBS guidelines for uh, dispensing the SGL2 inhibitors? Great. So
1: I guess you could either use it for the diabetic indication or you can use it for the CKD with albinuria indication. Um, So the albinuria indication, as mentioned, the UACR, actually it's a funny number, is 22.6, so greater than 22.6, or an EGFR greater than 25. But I'll just reassure the listeners that the EMPA kidney study went right down to an EGFR of 20, so it's quite safe to use it even at a lower EGFR and Mm -hmm. that you would stop the SGL2 inhibitor once they're on dialysis or they get a transplant. Um, But there is actually a large RCT occurring right now looking at using SGL2 inhibitors in transplant and dialysis patients for the cardiac benefits. The important thing to know, though, is that they need to be on the 10 milligram dose for it to be effective, because I have seen some patients that are on the combination DAPA metformin dose, and they're just on the five milligram, whatever the metformin dose is, just once a day. The pharma studies that they did before DAPA CKD showed that the most effective dose is 10 milligrams. So it encouraged the listeners to ensure they're on the 10 milligram dose. Great. Um, the, the other thing just to, to be cautious of is that SGL2 inhibitors do change the hemodynamics of the kidney initially. And so we advise if you can avoid checking the bloods for the first four weeks, I would avoid it because you might panic because you might see that EGFR has dropped more than 30%. percent mm. You have to check it for another reason, and it has. Mm -hmm. Our recommendation is just to do a fluid assessment and make sure they're not intravascularly dry. And if you're starting it on a patient that's on a loop diuretic and they're uvolemic, we recommend reducing that loop diuretic by 50% when you start an SGL2 inhibitor. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. There is one other caveat to starting an SGL2 inhibitor, which I find is very common in the neighbourhood where I work. If someone has a double digit HbA1c, I would wait until the HbA1c is closer to a single digit to avoid the genital urinary fungal infections.
0: Yeah, they can be so difficult to manage, can't they? Yes, and it's very difficult
1: to encourage the patient to try it again once their glycemic control is a bit better.
0: Yeah. Okay. So pillar number three, Tahira.
1: Pillar number three. All right, so we've got two more to go. So finerenone. So it's it's a new drug. It's only just landed on the PBS in the last couple of months. What is finerenone, you ask? So it's a novel, selective, non-steroidal mineral corticoid receptor antagonist that basically is like an anti-inflammatory for the kidney. It's different to the steroidal mineral corticoid receptor antagonist like spironolactone. It's a cleaner drug, so you're less likely to get the side effects like well, you don't get the side effects of gynecomastia. The pathway we're targeting with finerenone is the inflammation and fibrosis. And there's two trials that have been done with finerenone: the Fidelio and Figaro trial. And they enrolled patients with EGFR greater than 25, a UACR greater than 22.6. They're already on an Acer and ARB. And it showed that it reduced the progression of CKD by 23%. Once again, we can start getting these patients on all these organ protective drugs that are targeting the different pathophysiological pathways, hopefully, we can delay dialysis.
0: An anti inflammatory for the kidney. That is brilliant. I love it.
1: The cool thing about finerenone is there's really minimal side effects. In fact, in the in the studies, the, the major side effect they saw was hyperkalemia. But the problem was when they were running these trials, SGL2 inhibitors weren't used as widely as they are being used now. In fact, only 7% of the cohort were on SGL2 inhibitors. And why that's relevant is now to prescribe finerenone, which primary care can, the patient has to be on an SGL2 inhibitor. And SGL-2 inhibitors stimulate caluresis, so potassium excretion. So if you have them on the combination, you're less likely to see hyperkalemia. That's what we think. But there is a trial underway at the moment with an SGL-2 inhibitor and finerenone, which will probably change the following recommendations about what to do once you start finerenone with regards to hyperkalemia.
0: Tahira, what are the PBS criteria then for commencing finerenone?
1: It's essentially identical to who they enrolled in the trial. So just anyone with type 2 diabetes, the UAC has to be greater than 22, EGFR greater than 25. They have to be on an ACE and ARB and an SGL2 inhibitor unless any of those drugs are contraindicated. Mm-hmm. And they can't be on spironolactone as well. So they can't be on the deroidal mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. And then PBS also asks that if you have heart failure for reduced ejection fraction, then you're likely to require a steroidal MRA that you don't prescribe Phenarinone.
0: Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So
1: if you start someone on Phenarinone, there's two different doses. So if their EGFR is greater than 60, you start them on 20 milligrams. And if it's less than 60, 10 milligrams. But it's recommended only to start them on that if their potassium is less than 5.5 or closer to 5 would be ideal. And the recommendation is to check their electrolytes after a month. And if it's stable, then just for monthly onwards, which is essentially when you do the routine diabetic sure. cycle
0: of care. Yeah, fantastic. So then the fourth pillar to here, what's that?
1: The final pillar is GLP-1 agonists, which we know are in hot demand across the country. So drugs like a have shown in international trials that there's potentially promising nephroprotective benefits. And they're currently doing a study right now with semiglutide called the FLOW trial, where they have patients on ACEs and ARBs already and um, some SGL2 inhibitors to see whether or not there's a further additive benefit to reduction of CKD progression. And obviously, the GLP-1s also have the benefit of the improved hyperglycemia and also the weight loss, which is beneficial because obesity can lead to focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Now, obviously, the biggest, trickiest thing about GLP-1s is
0: navigating the PBS with prescribing that. Yeah, everybody wants to know which pharmacy has a Zempik. I need a Zempik. What are the (laughs) tips and tricks to prescribing the GLP-1s from your point of view, Tahira? Well, I guess availability is key.
1: Look, I don't really have any tricks. Obviously, Zempi is really the only one that's available at the moment. There's still major supply issues with Trilicity. I think most people just follow the routine suggestion where you start at the 0.25 milligrams weekly and and after a month of tolerating that going up to um, the 0.5 and then under one milligram after they've tolerated the, the lower dose prior to that. Really, if they're on high doses of insulin, they suggest having a 20 to 30% reduction as well, unless their glycemic control is extremely poor.
0: It's an awfully big undertaking for patients with diabetes, isn't it, to make sure they don't develop the diabetic kidney disease and then go on to need all of these medications. Tahira, how are we better able to manage our patients to help avoid diabetic kidney disease? I suppose it just comes back to really good general comprehensive care of our cohort of patients.
1: Yeah, that's right. So unfortunately, you know, sometimes when we diagnose patients with type Two diabetes, they may already have had hyperglycemia for some time and the damage to their kidney has already started. And so there's not much prevention. There's only really mitigation to prevent it getting worse. So the recommendation is just like the standard comprehensive care, as you said, you know, encouraging those lifestyle changes, ensuring that they have optimal glycemic control as close to the beginning of their diagnosis. So once you've diagnosed them, and also addressing their cardiovascular risk factors as well as good blood
0: pressure control. It's a good reminder to all of us to be more encouraging of our diabetic patients to keep that really good glycemic control, isn't it? Tahira, we've talked about a lot of stuff today. So the kidney health check, looking at the urine ACR, the EGFR and the blood pressure, investigating further if we have any concerns about kidney health in any of our patients. Remembering that one in 10 Queenslanders are affected by chronic kidney disease and one in five people from animal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds. And remembering that overweight and obesity is a major risk factor for kidney disease and screening our patients early if we suspect they might develop a kidney concern. Really excited to learn about finerenone. excited to learn about the CKD Go app. I'm going to be downloading that and having a look shortly. To hear, it. is there anything else that we need to know in our community about chronic kidney disease or nephrology generally that you think we should be sharing with our listeners today?
1: I guess I'd just like to encourage the clinicians that are seeing patients with diabetes to um, not be afraid to start these medications that are targeting the four pillars of diabetic kidney disease rather than waiting for the, them to see a nephrologist because as soon as we get their patients on these organ-protective medications, we are preventing ongoing damage. That's essentially it, Alyssa. That's fantastic.
0: Fine is his it. kidney. I'm his kidney. I like that. <laughs> I think we can get a whole advertising campaign around that slogan, time is kidney. Dr. Tahira Scott from the Cairns region looking after our Torres and Cape patients. Thank you so much for your time today talking about kidney disease and diabetic kidney disease. Got a lot of things to take home and put into our own practices. Thanks so much. Thank you. For more information about the Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs, or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline, and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, health services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.